Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes, and within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds, so I've completely turned my health around. In this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Oh, yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? That'd be a big no. (laughs) (laughs) We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. And we hope to share some of that research. And where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We love to cook and we love to eat. Mm-hmm. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Ignore it, I dare ya. Ignore it not. So, <laughs> let's start podcast number 81. Join the Ruminati with Dr. Peter Ballerstead. So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week? Let's see. Oh, that was a rogue dietitian with yeah, uh, with Yuan with Feng Yuan Liu. Yeah, no, we have absolutely no apologies to make for <laughs> our rogue dietitian. <laughs> she was great. She is awesome. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. A ketogenic diet is twenty grams or less of carbohydrates per day, mm-hmm. mostly from green leafy vegetables and nuts and things like that. Yep. And uh, protein is moderate. One to one and a half grams of protein for every kilogram of lean body mass. And then the rest of our energy we get from fat. And you basically want to eat fatty proteins, and the fattier the better, until Mm. you can't eat anymore. (laughs) Well, until you're satisfied, really. I mean, that's the thing. Somebody said to me that they admire my diligence sticking with my diet on Facebook the other day. And I said, no diligence required. You just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're satisfied. That's right. That's pretty easy. It's not rocket surgery. Not rocket science. So, Richard, how was your week? Uh, it was actually good. I uh, got a DNA test. I actually did this back when Keto Fest was on. I spat mm. in a jar and, and mailed it away. And it's taken a long time bec- uh, to come back to me with the results because apparently the initial DNA test that, that they did didn't have enough DNA. Mm. Uh, and so they had to, to, you know, make more DNA, r- replicate more DNA from mm. it. But eventually mm. they sent me back the test. Uh, this was with 23andMe. It cost me about $100. It was a special on Amazon, but normally it's $200 to do a 23andMe test. Right. And they tell you what your ancestry is and they tell you if you're a carrier of for some diseases, but they also allow you to download all of the DNA information that, they, that they've extracted, and right. they, they get something like 0.1% of your total DNA. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a fair number of – they basically put your DNA on a chip, and this chip reads the, reads the stuff. And uh, uh, so what you can do is you can take this data and you can take it to another company called Promethease, for about five bucks they'll do a report, and they'll tell you every single thing that they know – 
uh, about from your DNA, and wow. they'll give you the PubMed reference to the to the to the study into that particular SNP. That is um, the coolest thing I've ever heard. Wow. Absolutely. But it's a bit overwhelming. I, I went to my doctor with like the top 20 things and there is like about 2,000 things that this report produced. And I took this, this to my doctor the other day and uh, we had a conversation about it and I said, you know, um, you're probably going to hear about this a lot because these tests are going to be coming out and patients are not going to know what to do. They're going to get scary information from these tests right. and, you know, it, they're going to be overwhelmed. So I can tell you what the results were of this test. It's quite interesting, actually. Um, it turns out that my ancestry is 99.1% European. Okay. And you could probably... You could probably guess that yeah. from how I look. Yeah. And I was kind of hoping that, you know, maybe somewhere – I have a convict ancestry. One of my ancestors – in fact, my my DNA, uh, my, my mitochondrial DNA made it to Australia. I know the exact date that it came to Australia okay. because my mother's 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 mother uh, was a convict on the first fleet. And so yeah. it was January 26, 1776 was, it was wow. when my DNA, my, my mitochondrial DNA made it. Australia was originally a penal colony. And that's, that's uh, right. So, you know, Absolutely. We, we, America and Australia share that, you know, it was founded by criminals. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, uh, 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 some of the, uh, some of the, Amer uh, the American states, I think, um, uh, some of the southern states were used as were penal colonies for the British as well at one yeah. point. So, uh, yeah, Georgia, I think, was a penal colony. So mm. that's how Still they started. Still is. So anyway. no, I'm just kidding, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, the, um, I was kind of hoping that maybe some of my – my sort of uh, criminal ancestors had, uh, had maybe got some Aboriginal DNA, or you know that, right, that yeah, would have yeah. been it would have been something cool. Interesting. But, but it turns out there is actually something interesting in my ancestry. As okay. I said, I'm 99.1 percent European, and it's mostly British and Irish, and you know there's a little bit of Northern European, mm. um, but I'm 0.9 percent Indian. No kidding from the from the continent of Asia. India. Well, from, from the subcontinent. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Which is fascinating. So I never would have picked that. So I'm absolutely amazed and very pleased, actually, to have yeah. something a little bit uh, unusual in my DNA. So sure. The other thing that I found out about my DNA is that I'm homozygous for APOE3. Now, homozygous basically means that both of my alleles are APOE3. Uh, so I'm a 3-3. Three, three. And anyone who's a 4-4, four, four, this is the uh, ancestral DNA. This is prior to uh, agriculture. Uh, most of us would have had this DNA. And when agriculture came in, we had to uh, react to uh, to the change in the in 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 how we lived, uh, we probably killed off a lot of the four fours, and uh, we ended up having more three threes and even two twos who are more able to deal with the new carbohydrate loading coming into the diet. Anyway, so th to cut a long story short, I'm three three, which means that that um, I, I'm not predisposed to Alzheimer's. People who are 4-4 four, four have a good chance. If they get, have a high-carb diet, they've got a good chance of uh, of, um, uh, of Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. Um, I'm also homozygous for impaired metformin response, and that basically means that uh, my response to metformin is 0.75 uh, times the response of most people. And there are some people in the world, in fact, most people with African ancestry appear to be 1.5 times the response for metformin. So it means that wow. I just have to have a little bit 
more metformin than, than most people to get, have the same effect. And th- this is actually a part of the gene that encodes GLUT2, which is the transporter that gets glucose out of liver cells into the rest of the body. So it makes sense that metformin sort of puts a barrier on glucose coming out of the liver. So that kind of makes sense why that would be specific there but what it means is that i had a conversation with my doctor i increased my metformin dosage that is so fascinating and and very helpful and and it also kind of explains maybe why why your uh insulin has been higher maybe i don't know yeah yeah well i'm i'm definitely going to see what uh, increasing my metformin dosage is going to do for me, and uh, hopefully that will uh, hopefully will it'll put more of a lid on my insulin production. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I've I've got a mutation called the Leiden mutation, which is this is actually the most serious one in my uh, genetic assay. I have a three point five to four point four fold increased risk of thrombosis, which is a you know a, a clotting, uh, so right. a good chance of uh, strokes and uh, uh, and uh, wow. Uh, you know, a 3.5 to 4.4 increased risk over the general population. That's serious. But it also doesn't mean that you can't overcome that, right? I mean, this isn't no. uh, this isn't a sentence, you know, this isn't no. saying, yeah, it's not set in stone. It just means that you're more likely to. There's a, there's a correlation. Yeah. Well, in this particular case, it actually gives me something to do because now if ever I go for an operation, I'm going to tell the anaesthetist that, that I have this lied mutation, um, and I don't have the really bad one. The really bad one, your eleven fold increase. Um, wow! I'm just between three point five and four point four. So it also means that I can get injections to if if ever I fly, I can get an injection to decrease the chance of deep vein thrombosis. And right. you know, so so it, it. I think forewarned is forearmed in this particular case. Yeah, yeah, case. sure. That's 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 very interesting. Were there any other interesting markers that um, that relate to the the diet and uh, diabetes or anything? So you would have thought that I'd have markers for type two diabetes, but I actually don't. Huh. I've got more markers for type one diabetes. Wow! Um, I, one of my uh, genes is, uh, confers an eighteen fold increased risk of type one diabetes, which is the autoimmune version. And so, you know, I don't have a lot of uh, markers for type two diabetes. Uh, I'm likely to be more stimulated by coffee because I metabolize it more slowly. Ah. And um, the other thing is, there's there's a there's a gene that people talk about a lot called FOXO3, which is related to longevity. Um, and this, uh, you can either have a C in that gene or a T. And some people have two T's, some people have two C's, and some people have a C and a T. So uh, the people who have two C's are more likely to live to 100. And, and, and it's a longevity thing. Uh, people who have a CT are normal. And then people who have a TT are less likely to live to 100. And unfortunately, wow. I have the TT. So wow. I'm less likely to live to 100. So I better make my time count. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the only other thing that was funny was that I have a 1.1 1. 1, uh, times increase in breast size. Ah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, okay, I'm you genetically endowed, so to speak. So, if you had daughters or if you have uh, female ancestors, they probably ha- would have. I have cousins and, uh, and aunts who, who would, would fall well into endowed, that category. Yeah. So, yes. So... So that's, that that, so that was my week. My week my week was plumbing my DNA, and I had a fascinating time at that. So how was your week, Carl? Well, before I tell you about my week, I just want to say that I also did 23andMe, but I did it like five or six years ago. All and right. I did not do this $5 Prometheus kind of uh, 
uh, analysis, but I plan to, and I will share you it. You still can. I will yeah, share it on the, on, on the show after I get my results back. So I'm looking awesome. forward to that. I did go through the report for 23andMe, and there was no cause for alarm in terms of, you know, risk of diseases uh, right. or anything like that. But it doesn't mean anything. They just may not know, you know. Yeah, I think 23andMe are a little bit more conservative. Uh, they don't tell you a lot of bad news. Um, mm. uh, but when you send the data to Prometheus, they'll give you everything that they know about those SMPs. So. Right. Well, that's uh, that's cool. So let me tell you about my week. Um, I yeah. developed a bit of a cold, which you probably heard uh, in the last episode, but uh, yeah. it's much better now. And uh, awesome. The other thing is, I've been waiting for a good opportunity to start fasting, and we've had dinners and things like that. And and mm. now is it. So after tonight, I'm going to fast for seven days. So uh, or nice. six days actually. I'm going to fast from Friday night to Thursday night. And mm. next Thursday night is actually uh, a meetup, a New London meetup group, right? The ketogenic meetup group in New London. At Hot Rods? Yeah, where he's putting on a keto dinner. So that's where I'm going to break my fast. Interestingly, Hot Rods is where I'm going to have my last meal before my fast tonight. Yeah, that's awesome. Bookended by Hot Rods. Yeah, bookended by Hot Rods. So I'll let you know how that goes. That's awesome. And this is the point in the show where we give away a Two Keto Dudes coffee mug to one lucky member of the Two Keto Dudes fan club. And are you ready mm-hmm. for it? Wait, here Absolutely. it is. <laughs> the winner is John Somsky. Yeah. Well done, John. Well done, John. And John is also mm-hmm. one of our Patreons. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, which means that he pledges a certain amount of money every month to help mm. Two Keto do what it does and you just wait till yeah. you see what we're gonna do we we have some plans yeah. we got some big plans but one of the things that the patrons do is they support us keeping the ketogenic forums open which is right i mean that costs us a lot of money every month to yep. keep the ketogenic forums open and uh the patreon account uh basically helps us along with that so yep. thank you very much and uh if you um if you're on the ketogenic forums and you are one of our patrons um, you get a special badge. That's so right. So everyone will know that you contributed to keeping the forums open. Just by donating five bucks a month, you get a special badge yeah. so that you can brag to your friends. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for those people who have. Absolutely. Much Thanks to everybody, mm-hmm. actually. All mm. right. And that brings us to a little segment we call uh, Never gets old. How's your does voice it? holding up there, Carl? Oh, my voice is fine. My voice is fine. Yeah, I'm good. still a little uh, croupy. I still have some chestal mm-hmm. congestion, but at least I'm not sneezing and coughing the whole time. Yeah. And my voice is yeah. back to normal. So mm-hmm. that's good. Yeah. All right. So I'll go first. You remember back in Gary Fetke's episode 78, which was just a few weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Well, we got an email from Dwayne. Yeah. And Dwayne is a 48 year old male. He's about 5'9". He got high insurance Mm -hmm. quotes due to his weight and A1C numbers. And he did the Atkins diet and went from about 235 to 170 pounds, Mm -hmm. about 106 kilos to 77 kilos. He plateaued at 180 pounds. And then Mm -hmm. he cut his intake to about 500 calories a day. Ouch. And after he listened to our fasting episode, he did a 72-hour fast, which broke Mm -hmm. the plateau and he achieved his target weight. But then he was unable to eat without gaining weight. He was having one meal a day and found that if he ate more than 50 grams of protein or fat, he gained a pound. 
Wow. Yeah. He crippled his metabolic rate, right? Well, that's what we told him. We both told him we wouldn't mm. worry about gaining weight right now, and he should probably yeah. eat more, especially mm. fat, to increase his metabolic rate. And, yeah. you know, this is the whole fallacy of calories in, calories out, that, you, you know, if you eat less and move more, you'll, you'll lose mm. more weight. Actually, the secret is to eat more, and especially fat. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, Dwayne came back just recently and said, Richard and Carl, you two are brilliant, in all caps. <laughs> I want to take a moment to follow up on our previous emails and let you know everything you advised was spot on. My original goal was to stay below 170, and I was struggling to stop gaining every time I ate a normal meal. You advised to increase my intake to restart my metabolism. It was hard for me to accept, but I went along and increased my caloric intake, only with different ratios. Mm. If I would have finished listening to all of your episodes, I would not have wrecked my metabolism in the first place. All my answers were right there in the protein episode. And I imagine he's talking about the last protein episode we did, but I'm mm. not sure. He says, okay. I reduced the veggies and protein and increased my fat and calorie intake. I sit behind a computer all day and simply don't need the protein that I thought I did. Instead of gaining with every meal, I lost an additional 10 pounds and now find myself at 160. This is a 75-pound nice. loss in less than four months. That's I'd awesome. like to maintain 160 to 165, so I'll work on fine-tuning my ratios as I move into maintenance mode. I hope my results help confirm your theory about excessive protein, and I thank you both again for everything you do for us, Dwayne. Yeah, you're welcome, Dwayne. Well done. So, Dwayne has all of his food records, so it would be interesting to see exactly what he ate uh, if he's right. willing to share that information on the forums for other people to be able to see an example of what somebody who who's really going hypocaloric right. and restricting their caloric output by restricting their caloric input mm. um, and what it takes. It probably didn't take him a lot of extra energy um, to be able to, to, to essentially tell his body, it's okay, we're going to get food. You don't have to go into DEFCON 4. We could sort of sit on DEFCON 1 for right. a bit, you know. Yeah. Very good. Well, Dwayne, you're totally welcome about that, and, and uh, congratulations. And it also makes me happy to yeah. hear that, you know, that, that the things that we believe and the things that we think and our experiences are, are being confirmed by other people having the same experiences. So, well done. Yeah. Yes, awesome. Well done. So, I've got a mail here. It's actually uh, an article that came out recently on a new study that's just come out. It's called the Pure Study. And the article right. basically said the headline was, eating lots of cheese and meat could be a secret to long life. <laughs> and the article goes on and says, this is it, the study we've all been waiting for. Film at 11. Apparently, eating lots of cheese, meat and butter is the secret to a longer life and low-fat diets are not. Yeah. A, ma a major new study found low-fat diets could actually increase the risk of an early death by almost a quarter. Say what? Hmm. Those who ate the highest level of carbs, refined sugars found in fizzy drinks, processed meals, faced a 28% higher risk of early death. Hmm. While the National Health Service – this is articles written in Britain – the National hmm. Health Service warned people against having too much saturated fat. The latest research found that those who had a lower intake raised their chances of an early death by 13% compared to those eating plenty of saturated fat. Hmm. 
Okay, so this is an example of the popular press, the non-scientific press going hyperbolic, and they do this all of the time. In Next either week direction. it'll be an article right. about- yeah. In either direction. Next week it'll be an article about uh, how avocados are uh, damaging your sex life. Or, right. You know, and it'll be from some observational study with a small association that's been observed, uh, and and these articles have come out. Now, here's the thing: this this article supports my own beliefs and my own worldview and my own experience and the diet that I'm choosing to do. Right. But the fact that it supports me doesn't mean that I'm going to go along with the data. Right. I'm not going to 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 blindly go along with an associational study that doesn't rise to the level of the Bradford Hill um, standards for causation. If we have a look at the actual study. Yeah, let's do that. The Prospective Urban Rural Epidemiology, or PURE, study is a large epidemiological cohort study of individuals aged between 35 and 70 years uh, enrolled between January the 1st, 2003 and uh, March 31st, 2013, in 18 countries with a medium follow-up of 7.4 years, uh, and the dietary intake of 135,335 individuals in these 18 countries was recorded using validated food frequency questionnaires. Well, there's your first clue right there. That's You're the first clue. You're asking them to tell you what they ate, and yeah. that isn't science. No. I mean, these questionnaires are like, you know, they give you a questionnaire every year and say, thinking over the past year, how many times a week did you eat an orange? Right. And then they add that to the list. And so, you know, nobody's able to recall accurately with these things. And people often recall what you want them to recall. Yep. Um, Anyway, so the the, the primary outcomes for the study were total mortality, major cardiovascular events, fatal cardiovascular disease, total fatal myocardial infarct, stroke and heart failure. So what they were doing was they were looking in the 7.4 years and seeing who had really hard endpoints. So that was actually new. Most of these studies sort of look at proxy markers like LDL cholesterol and they try and propose some um, uh, relationship with the, the hard endpoints. But this one, the study, they actually looked at the hard endpoints, and I appreciate that part mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. of the process. So uh, they, they go on to say, we assess the associations between consumption of carbohydrate, total fat, and each type of fat with cardiovascular disease and total mortality. And we has calculated the hazard ratios using a multivariate Cox frailty model, um, which is fairly standard for these kinds of epidemiology. So, what was the summary of the study? The summary was that high carbohydrate intake was associated with higher risk of total mortality, whereas total fat and individual types of fat were related to lower total mortality. Total fat and types of fat were not associated with cardiovascular disease, myocardial infarct, or cardiovascular disease mortality, whereas saturated fat had an inverse association with stroke. Uh, global dietary guidelines should be reconsidered in the light of these findings. So we tend to agree with that, right? But mm. and as Richard sure. said, it doesn't matter. This is bad science, and yeah. and it just muddies the waters. You know, if some real scientist is going to come in here, or even worse, if if our listeners and you know start talking about this study as see, see, we we were right, we were right. The study is bad, so. Yeah. So just ignore it. 
Yeah, I I think it's worthwhile using this as a teachable moment, right? Uh, because dietitians and the uh, the Heart Association and the Di- Diabetes Associations have all used these associational studies for many years to drive their worldview of right. what diet uh, a human being should eat, right? And um, you know, even though. This particular pure study conclusions agree with my own belief that dietary carbohydrates drive hyperinsulinemia right. and then that drives cardiovascular disease. Personally, I'm not going to rely on this information uh, or this the results of this study for my own worldview when it comes to uh, carbohydrates because what they found was a 28% increase uh, in mortality or in risk, a 28% increased risk relative risk of mortality between two quintiles, one of which was a high-carbohydrate quintile and the other was a not-so-high-carbohydrate quintile. So, you know, anything less than a twofold increase just doesn't meet the Bradford Hill standard for causation. So unless it's 200% increase, it's just not worth uh, trying to make an association uh, to turn into a, a into a causal relationship. Um, but I think this is, a, as I said, a teachable moment for people who've used this kind of science in the past to make the case that we should be eating a plant-based, whole-grain, uh, high-carbohydrate, right. low-saturated-fat diet because yeah. their evidence is the same kind of, of stuff. Right. If you drill into the Australian Dietary Guidelines 2013, their evidence report uh, basically gives you all of the science that they use to come up with the Australian Food, the Australian version of the food pyramid. Right. It's called the Australian Dietary Guidelines. Okay. Um, and so if you take, for example, a statement like consumption of one to three serves per day of whole grain cereals is associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. Right. Okay. So that's their evidence. That's their statement. And then they go into the evidence that's necessary to produce that statement. And they give that evidence statement a grade of B. The evidence base is excellent. And they have a list of studies that refer to this. And if you drill into the first of those studies, just the first of them, mm-hmm. um, and we'll put the link in the show notes for that. And this study says whole grains protect against atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And if you look to the actual headline observation for this, that is epidemiological studies indicate that individuals with higher levels in the highest quintile of whole grain intake have a 29% lower risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease than individuals with lower levels in the lowest quintile of whole grain intake. Hmm. So, so hmm. you see their, 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 their evidence is, is, is insig- just as insignificant. 28% right. or 29% is, is, is noise. Right. Unless you're getting a twofold increase. It has to be. And that's, that's, necessary to meet the Bradford Hill standard for, for causation. Yeah. Cigarette smoking, for example, is a 700% increase for of lung cancer from people who smoke cigarettes. Right. So th- that, that's really where this all has all come from. So I guess the, the, the bottom line for me is that that observation that they have is just simply inadequate to infer uh, that whole grains in the diet can cause a reduction in cardiovascular disease. Right. And the pure study results are equally inadequate to assert that an observed 28% correlation between carbs and mortality is causal. Yeah. Um, but what the pure study actually does give us, which is really actually useful, is it shows a non-correlation between saturated fat or even total fat and cardiovascular disease. Now, how does it do that? Well, it 
it show, it shows that no matter how much saturated fat that you have, there is no difference in the rate of of cardiovascular disease. I see. So, but, but you, we're still taking it on the word of the people who ate the fat or didn't eat the fat, right? Because it's it was still all based, based on, on these bad food frequency. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Right. But what you can do is you can use non-correlation to infer non-causation. That's true. If you're going to infer causation from correlation, you need to have a large enough effect. But if mm. there is no correlation, then you can adequately say, okay, saturated fats do not cause cardiovascular disease. Right. Simply the game is over in Australia, at least for the NHMRC and the Dietitians Association who provided the systematic literature review claiming that dietary saturated fats cause cardiovascular disease. If they're honest, they have to drop that claim. And um, by the way, we have a blog post at science.2keto.com mm -hmm. that has a concise list of real science that we do like to cite. Mm. I might tack on to the end of that statement, yeah. So, and one of those is a, is a recap study, sort of a, a mm -hmm. research, yeah. basically that showed that saturated fat in the diet does not correlate with coronary risk. So, these were 76 mm. observational and randomized controlled studies covering mm -hmm. more than 650,000 participants. Wow. And that found that those with a high saturated fat intake did not have an increased risk of heart disease. So, so this is a better study than just looking at people filling out questionnaires. Both came to yeah. the same conclusion, but uh, mm. you know, this is 650,000 people in over 76 uh, look, studies. So I you're just right. Think that the, the game the, is over. The game yeah. is over. For, as far as saturated fat is concerned, any dietary standard that starts off with, we think saturated fat is bad, you yeah. just got to literally say, show me the science. Right. Show me the science. <laughs> that is our mantra here at Two Keto Dudes Labs. <laughs> Absolutely. One interesting thing about protein, uh, I saw a couple of people on Facebook mentioning the PURE study shows the effect on relative risks for varying amounts of protein. And there are a lot of people who like protein who were saying, oh, uh, protein, uh, that there is a reduced risk of mortality and all of the various risks uh, for 20% of protein versus against 10% of protein. And I looked at the actual data, and yes, the 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 risk drops from uh, of total mortality drops significantly uh, as you increase the protein up until the point where you get about 16.9% of your energy from protein, oh. and then it starts going back up again. So it's a J-curve, you know. So the sweet spot's around about 17% of your energy from protein. Um, and if you look at the numbers, 20% of protein produces just as bad results as 15% for everything except stroke risk. And in stroke risk, it's, it's interesting. It's the, they found the, the negative correlation between saturated fat and stroke risk. They also found that uh, protein, the more protein you have, the, the, the lower your stroke risk. But all of the other risks start to go up when you get above 17% of energy from protein. Interesting. Um, so f for a 2,000 kilocalorie day, uh, the average ma human male, uh, if you're going to limit yourself to 20 grams of carbs, that would be roughly 85 grams of protein. Your, that's your sweet huh. spot. That's your 17% of energy. Yeah, that's about what we talk about. That's one one gram per kilogram for me and for you. Yeah. Yeah, for me at 80 kilograms of lean body mass, that's 1.06 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Yeah, it's even lower for me probably. So somebody asked a question, I wonder what 
that would be in the context of low carb diets if they tested the same people with low carb diets. Right. And if you look at uh, George Carhill's data, he was looking at the starvation in man study. He observed that uh, that a person who is producing all of their own glucose is using about twenty grams of protein a day to produce that after about five weeks of the of their starvation, or it would be the same with a ketogenic diet. Somebody on a ketogenic diet is probably only using about 20 grams of protein. So you'd shift that to the right. So for me, uh, as an 80.5 kilogram lean mass person, that would be roughly 1.3 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Um, and above that, mortality risks, with the exception of stroke, would start getting worse again. So you're right. That's right within our range between 1 and 1.5. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Wow, that that's fantastic, and thank you for doing all that research, Richard. And uh, welcome as you do every show. It's just amazing. <laughs> and uh, and people, we do apologize. This is going to be a long show today, but we really needed to bring you this information in a little bit of detail. And we also want to talk to our guest, Doctor Peter Ballasted. And Peter has an extensive background in forage production, utilization, and forage-based livestock production systems. He was the forage extension specialist at Oregon State University from 1986 until 1992. His personal experience led him to re-examine human diet and health, and what he's learned doesn't agree with the advice we've been given for the past several decades. And this new understanding, combined with his forage background, has given him an interest in local, sustainable animal production systems. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, tell us just a little bit about your background. Uh, I am, by training, uh, a forage agronomist and a ruminant nutritionist. Mm. And I work in agriculture, and I advocate for ruminant animal agriculture, as well as the role of ruminant animal products in the human diet. Mm -hmm. So ruminants are animals with multiple stomachs, right? Yeah. They chew a cud. They have hooves, even number of toes. They have three or four compartmented stomach. Um, yeah. There's a big group of them worldwide. Now, I believe kangaroos in Australia aren't, aren't specifically ruminants, but they do have multiple stomachs. So they, uh, they're like ruminant adjacent. Yeah, a distant cousin, perhaps. Um, so cows, sheep, goats, deer, um, bison, uh, water buffalo, these would all be uh, examples of ruminants that people would be familiar with. Right. And in particular, you're interested in grass-fed ruminants for feeding humans, right? Uh, not exclusively. All ruminants are grass-fed to a large extent, at least half, and in some cases, 100% of their life cycle, you know, their whole life diet, is material that can't be utilized by human beings. Oh, uh, yeah, right. And we may call that grass to some extent, or it's going to be a large part grass. Mm. Could be grass, could be clover, could be other forbs. In some cases, it's woody uh, species for browsers. Uh, but it can also be things like um, uh, byproducts from crop processing okay. or vegetable processing. It could be grain. It can be many things. Uh, the point is that these animals, because of their ecological niche, are capable of taking high-fiber, low-fat, and poor-quality protein diets and converting those into high-quality animal protein and animal fat, which we 
are uniquely in need of as opposed to other primates. Yeah. Yeah. We first met in Breckenridge. You had a presentation. I remember you making the case that so much of the earth is covered by uh, terrain that is only good for growing uh, food for ruminants and not for human beings. And so, you know, I've heard often the vegan argument that, you know, that, that, uh, that we can't continue to have a meat based uh, lifestyle because it is damaging to the ecology, but surely, um, you know, with so much of the planet unable to support us, um, we'd be stuffed if we didn't uh, grow ruminants. Uh, indeed. I, the, the figures are somewhere <laughs> around 4% of the Earth's surface, entire surface, is um, what we would call cultivatable land, um, right. where, while about 14% or so is what we call rangeland. Oh, and this is okay. land that can grow, um, well, if, roughly speaking, it can produce cellulose. Grazable. That, <laughs> uh, uh, grass of various kinds that mm. hu- no vertebrate produces cellulase. So no, uh, only the microorganisms produce that enzyme. Wow. So cellulase is the most abundant carbohydrate in the biosphere right the major mm. the major products of photosynthesis are are, are first cellulose mm-hmm. and then starch right so so uh yes this idea that we'd be better off if people you know we fed the grain to people instead of animals one argument is we're already eating two-thirds of the grains produced in the world by humans yep the human diet is already plant-based. And if mm. all of the researchers and clinicians that you and our audience would be familiar with are right, and I believe they are, we need to change that for the benefit of humanity and our health. Yeah. Well, where are those animal products going to come from? It, it's a myth that humans can survive on a plant-based diet and thrive. Yeah, we can survive, mm. but thriving and survival are two different things. Agreed. So, Peter, I've heard you mention, or I've heard people mention the ruminati. What is the ruminati? The ruminati are those uh, it, select individuals who have become aware of the role of ruminant animals in our eco- ecology, uh, their role in human development and modern societies, and their absolutely essential role in feeding the world tomorrow, and also who value the products of ruminant animal agriculture in our own health and well-being. Well, I'm definitely part of that group because I very much value the the products of ruminant agriculture. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you as members of the Ruminati and forward the ruminant revolution. Yeah. So one of the questions that we asked Gary Fetke a couple of weeks ago is that if, you know, if, if these guidelines are so wrong and people need to eat less carbohydrates and more meat, how are we going to change our economy of food from a plant-based diet to a meat-based diet? Um, some of these things get to where I just start swagging, right? Because I'm not, <laughs> it, we're, we're outside of my area of expertise. But one of the reasons to avoid unnecessary rigidity is that it is in fact true that by feeding ruminant animals 
Now, in my discipline of animal nutrition, we talk about concentrates. So these would be substances that have higher digestibility. They can often be grain, but they're not entirely grains. Yeah. Okay. The, the problem is not the grain-fed cattle. The problem is the grain-fed people. <laughs> and right. it, it, there's a lot of rabbit holes we could go down on this, but the, the fact is that we don't have to talk about an either or. Yeah. We can talk about improving the productivity of our grasslands and rangelands. We can talk about improving the efficiency of producing animals from those resources that might in some cases and probably in most enter into a feeding period where they're going to get some of these grains ultimately. Okay. Also, I don't think that, you know, maybe a quarter of the human population can eat grains and remain healthy. I don't know. Um, but we have good evidence that about three quarters of the American population can't. So, yeah. um, how do we change these things? Um, but it all starts with an acknowledgement of where the science in fact has gotten maybe where it was all along. That's arguable. But, uh, now we, we need to acknowledge as Gary has done recently that so much of our recommendations are faith-based. Right. They're not based on the best science, certainly not the best current science. And so as I try to talk to both agriculture and our nutrition tribe, I've, I've taken to talking in terms of tribes, <laughs> um, I have to educate my agriculture tribe about what we know in nutrition in our tribe. Right. And at the same time, I need to introduce my nutrition tribe to what's going on in agriculture. Yeah, in sure. both cases, people think they know things that I think we can kind of demonstrate maybe aren't as well founded as we'd like to think that they are. So once we kind of see what the goal should be, then I think we find ways to get there, I, I guess is the short answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of dogma and certainly a lot of cherry picking of science to support dogma that happens on all sides. And, and it, it uh, there was just today announced uh, a paper from the pure, the pure study, which was a nutritional study. Um, it's a worldwide study. It's a very large study. And it's actually that, that it's a large, um, study based on food frequency questionnaires, which, you know, we've always argued. Uh, for many years that the food frequency questionnaire is a bad, a poor uh, source for science, a, a poor source for spelunking information out of. And and yet we're, um, you know, this study comes out and it's it's coming down on the side that, that you know, that supports our own worldviews and, and, and people have lost their critical view upon that. So, you know, it, it's very hard to, to get, to, to think outside of your, your worldviews for these kinds of things, and I can certainly imagine for uh, for for uh, the agricultural uh, world 
they really, I mean, I, I grew up on a cattle farm. I, my, my uncle was a grazier in Australia. And so I have a little bit of experience in that kind of world. And it's, it's, it's very different from the food end of things. So, um, it, it certainly, it, it would surprise me if you can get a meeting of minds between these two communities, because uh, I would expect that there'd be a, yeah, two tribes. Uh, you do, you have two <laughs> tribes to deal with there. I would think there are, uh, I, I heard this at a conference that the average American today is more likely to have direct personal experience with the criminal justice system than with production agriculture. Whoa. Wow. That's a sobering thought. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot of things wrong with that, that, you know, you could talk about, but the point is that, and, and I heard that and I went, Oh, okay. That's, you know, first of all, I write it down. Second of all, I go find the sources for that because I'd love to use it. And, and from yeah. the United States Department of Agriculture, they do something called a census of agriculture. You can find this information. Um, and they list primary operators of farms as one of their metrics. You can also find from the Department of Justice, you know, prison, you know, population of prisoners. And so it is true, in fact, by those two authorities that we have slightly more people incarcerated, local, state, federal, in the United States than we have as primary operators of farms. It's wow. about two million in each case, a Jeez. little bit more for the incarcerated. And we should point out that's not parole and probation. That's actual incarceration. Oh Again, there's lots of things wrong there. But for my example... Somebody said, yes, but Pete, what does it take to be called a primary operator of a farm? All it takes is that you sell a thousand dollars worth of product from your quote farm, unquote, in a year. That could be a backyard production. Yeah. It, and, and there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that, but you're not going to feed the nation, let alone the world that way. And number two, um, you can then dig a little further into the USDA data and find that something like 70% of that 2 million people, so make the maths easy for me and call it three quarters, are making less than 25% of their household income from their farm. Wow. So we're talking about 500,000 people roughly operating farms that are producing more than a quarter of their household income in sales. Wow. And from that, they're feeding this nation and a substantial part of the world. Okay. Let's, let's, let the, let's ruminate on that a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, uh, bad human. No donut. Um, so there, there's, there's a romance about it. And then there's a reality about it. And romance is fine, but just don't confuse it with reality. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, Gary Taubes back in, what was it, 2002, I think, his article in New York Times Magazine, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? Yeah. Okay. So I'm taking that and leveraging it a little bit and saying, what if it's all been a big fat lie? Mm. Was 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 the anti-fat message the only thing we got wrong in this? No. And I talked about <laughs> this a little bit at Breckenridge. How many other narratives, well, one, produced the dietary guidelines, played a role in them? And, and as Gary Fetke has 
shown, there's, there's this belief system that heavily influenced dietetics and then led to the, the, the food industry as well as to the dietary guidelines. But there are other narratives that very happily played along with that or have been spawned by it and now are just part of the common sort of narrative and groupthink. And I, I think that we rightly, mm-hmm. as you said earlier, we need to be careful about the, 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 the new conventional wisdom that we just uncritically take along with us. Right. And, and I would just point out that if in fact Atkins produced benefits and I'm saying he did. And mm-hmm. if in fact the Eads produced benefits, and I would say they did, and if yep. Pennington produced benefits, and I would say he did, you know, there's this mm-hmm. line that goes all the way back to Banting, for God's sake. They didn't do it with organic, grass-fed, you know, local, harvested under the full moon by Vestal Virgins, <laughs> water with unicorn tears, kind of. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. I look at it as a house of cards, you know, like or, or a game of Jenga. Like, it's it's really true when you're talking about fundamentals, you know, fundamentals of belief. These are the things that when you change them, they're at the bottom of the pile or the bottom of the Jenga, right? And everything is built upon it. So when you when you remove the water at the bottom of the ocean, as David Byrne says in Once in a Lifetime, everything just sort of falls apart. You have to rebuild your entire belief structure from scratch, and that takes work, and it takes time, and it's it, it's a major annoyance to most people. Not only that, but if you're wrong, you know, it's it's hard to change the fundamentals. Well, it, it's sure uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody said there is no pain in change. There is, however, a tremendous amount of pain associated with the resistance to change. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and yes, I, I have a picture of this, you know, rotten foundation and the crumbling wall. And you don't fix that by putting wallpaper on the wall. Mm. You, you have to tear out the rotten sill. You may have to rebuild the foundation stones itself and then rebuild the wall above it. And all of that, I think, has to be looked at. And yes, there are lots of interests involved in here some of which we would recognize as people that are part of our tribe. Right. Mm. Right. I mean, that that's the challenge um, yeah. is, uh, uh, but we do have examples. We do have people that I refer to as heroes. You know, the short list would be people like Professor Noakes. Sure. Dr. Fetke. Yeah. And there are others, and I don't mean to slight them by not mentioning them. My brain's just not had enough caffeine yet this morning. <laughs> yeah. No, lots of others. People who can stand up publicly and say, I was wrong. Yep. Lots of them. Which is remarkable behavior for homo sapien. We, we, we tend not to do that. We find lots of ways. And, and so, um, one of my lines is that, um, if an honest man is shown to be an error, he either ceases to be an error or he ceases to be honest. Mm. And, <laughs> and that should be a caution to me as well. Somewhere down the line, I'm open, I hope, to the possibility that somebody can show me information that says, no, some of these things really are critically important. Right. But at, at this point, everything that I'm seeing says that this hyperinsulinemia, 
this dysregulation of the insulin system, for lack of a better mm-hmm. phrase, within human beings is responsible for the vast majority of the chronic illness that we're currently experiencing in this country yep. and around the world. Absolutely. And I think that we have sufficient evidence from research and clinical application to say what we what somebody in that space ought to be informed of and apply as sort of a first part of treatment protocol. It may not be sufficient by itself, um, but we have reason to think that it could get them a long way there. I have the experience, it, it might not be surprising that the people I work with get to hear a little of it about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and one person without you know, trying to be um, sensitive to information, but one of them um, back in early March finally got themselves to a doctor uh-huh. and was diagnosed as type 2 diabetic, 11 and a half or 11.8 Whoa. Uh, A1C, wow. uh, which we could translate out to 270 something average blood glucose. Yeah. And um, they called me up um, as they were leaving the office. Sure. And I made them repeat that, you know, Peter is not that kind of doctor. So, (laughs) okay. Um, He um, was given a lot of prescriptions. He ended up on one for about a month. He signed up immediately for dietdoctor.com. He also... um, got a book that I recommended and some links and he and his family got serious about this thing. Um, early March, uh, he went back in for a follow-up exam, significant weight loss. The one medication was discontinued. Doctor says, I rarely see this. Hmm. I often hear that. <laughs> okay. Uh, doctor, are you going to like follow that thought up a little bit? <laughs> um, and then in mid, I think it was mid July, I heard from them again. Mm. They, their A1C was now down to five, five. Oh, they discontinued that one medication. Whoa. So from early April to mid July, they've been medication free. It's entirely diet and they've, their fasting blood glucose had been 97 yeah. in April, and now they're 55A1C. Wow. wow. That's so, great. what was the point of all that? The point of all that was everyone eats. This is a unit. Not only is this a unifying theory of chronic illness, but I think this is a way to bridge this chasm that exists between agriculture and the rest of the public. And mm-hmm. we do live in a world where we have all these very bizarre messages coming at us. And you could burn yourself out trying to address all of them. Yep. My message to anyone interested in um, a, a low-carbohydrate, healthy-fat, ketogenic diet is 
Uh, don't believe what you hear about the impact of animal agriculture on the environment, hmm. especially ruminant animal agriculture. Hmm. And I'm happy to provide sources to, you know, deal with that information. But the most important thing you should be doing for the environment right now is healing yourselves. Agreed. People often talk more about the big farming impact. Uh, impact on the environment rather than the, you know, simple grass-fed farming, which there's a difference, right? Well, but I would push back and say for many of the things that people are most concerned about environmentally, your environmental impact is actually less from what people think of big farming than it is from grass-fed. Huh. No kidding. Again, it's all how you build the model. It's all about your assumptions. You know, so, but at the end of the day, we, in, in that particular space, we should be more concerned about the water cycle than the carbon cycle. Mm, yeah. And, and because there's a whole lot of really fascinating information coming out about this thing called soil health. Right. And what we're learning about the soil and, and, um, the fact that grazing animals on perennial grass stands is the best thing we can be doing for soil health. Now, that's not to say that we exclude crop production from time to time. And again, I could go down this rabbit hole for quite some time, so yeah. I'm not going to do right. that. But again, how many of the narratives that we've heard are in fact built on partial information or skewed perspective? Right. And at the end of the day, um, we're talking about human lives here. Right. And, and my priorities are for human flourishing for as many of our brothers and sisters worldwide as we can foster. And yeah. I, I say that with the knowledge that it's only prosperous societies that can afford to invest in conservation and afford to you know, be, uh, worry about environmental impact. That, you know, that's a luxury that people who are stuck in survival mode don't have. Mm -hmm. And, and so is it better for the wildlife? If we're producing affordable, high-quality animal products, and I, yes, the answer is yes, okay. because otherwise we'll go kill the wildlife. Right, right. Yes, that's true. Definitely. So, so, and again, we don't frequently think that way uh, for a number of reasons. Part of which is it's just outside of our experience. Um, but again, the work that the Noakes Foundation is doing, trying to um, reverse the impact of, of obesity and metabolic syndrome in that population. Um, we ought to be thinking outside of our admittedly affluent, admittedly Western tribe hmm. that is the low carbohydrate, healthy fat and ketogenic kind of community primarily how do we right. how do we because if the statistics are right there are populations even in north america that are in greater need of this message than the general population mm. right mm -hmm. yeah i've always said that if you change your diet 
to have grain fed to go to grain fed beef it may not be as good for you necessarily as, as grass-fed beef, but it's going to get you 99% of the way there. Or maybe, maybe let's say, pulling a figure out of the air, maybe 90% of the way there, and then you'll get the next 5% by going for a grass-fed beef. If that's the case, um, and, and I think you could probably make the argument that it is, mm-hmm. then you may as well get poor populations to at least get cheap, available mm. Even if it's grain-fed beef, because that will take them most of the way that they need to go. Certainly, better than eating the grains. Right. Yes, and and again, I, I think the key phrase there is maybe. I I, I think that we frankly don't know. <laughs> um, one of the images that comes from my training in soil fertility is this uh, picture: a uh, wooden rain barrel, you know, staves of different length. So the amount of water that that barrel is going to hold is going to be determined by the shortest stave. Ah, yeah. So in yes. soil fertility, right. we look for the limiting nutrient or the limiting biotic um, uh, factor. You know, it may be rainfall, for example, or it could be temperature or sunlight or any number of things, some of which can be modified and some can't. Um, but when we get to f- nutrients, we need to make sure that we know which one's limiting so that we get economic return and don't, in fact, create toxicity from imbalance. Okay, let's use that rain barrel as an analogy for human health. And right now, the shortest stave has got to be insulin dysregulation. Call it whatever we want to. And then you can start looking for, okay, so... When we get that one sorted, we're probably going to be running into others, but it's difficult for me to know what those are going to be, except it seems likely to be a protein issue. Hmm. Because again, the data that we have suggests that the, you know, 40% of Americans aren't getting enough protein. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's by uh, a, a metric that we all know certain people that would question whether that's accurate or not. Um, and it considers all protein, plant and animal source to be equivalent. And we know that's not right. Sure. Okay. And then if you look at just women, most females over the age of eight aren't getting enough protein by that same questionable mm. yardstick. Mm. So I have a hard time believing that protein deficiency isn't playing a part in this somewhere. And we know that our ability to, or, you know, our need for dietary protein shifts as we age. So there's, there's lots of things there to look at. And body fat composition. Indeed. So we may find that this omega-6 to omega-3 issue, which is the principal one that people look at, we can talk about CLA content, But it needs to be acknowledged that that whole fish oil industry sprang out of what I call the Greenland paradox. Yeah. We find a population that's eating a lot of fat and not having heart disease. How do we explain it? Well, we can't question our our primary belief here. Right, sure. So we come up with another paradox. It was the same with resveratrol in the French population. People said, you know, it must be the red wine. Or the olive oil or the chocolate or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and then we need to also acknowledge that ruminant flesh is not a rich source of either omega-6 or omega-3, regardless of how it's produced. Hmm. And, and so people talk very confidently about this. 
Um, the data, however, doesn't always support that. And, and from a practical point of view, there's no data in the marketplace to help people make informed decisions on this. Right. There, there's, hmm. there's assumptions. Yeah. You can't really know whether a particular piece of meat is uh, grass fed or grain fed. You can make a guess. Well, and, and again, international hmm. issues, but in the United States, there are, you know, marketing, uh, tools that are labels that people put on. And I'm not saying that they're inaccurate. Um, the, the, the issues are, however, the actual quantity in that particular piece of meat because these amounts and therefore ratios will vary depending on the cut, depending on the breed, depending yep. on the sex, depending mm. on the season. Mm. Uh, so with all that variation, how is are, you can't assume. You can't infer. Yeah. Right. But we can say confidently that if grass-fed beef is what you need because of a desirable ratio, then you should not be eating poultry and you should not be eating pork. Right. Because the nature of a ruminant digestive system versus a monogastric digestive system is that the flesh of a ruminant animal is going to be less influenced by diet right. than are the other animals. Right. So, here's my question. The, uh, the people that push omega-3 oils say that omega-6 oils increase inflammation, correct? Yes. Uh, I okay. would. I, I, that's my understanding, and I would agree with what you said. Okay. So, if that were the case, and I completely healed myself of type 2 diabetes and reduced my inflammation significantly by eating grain-fed beef... Bacon, eggs. I wasn't taking fish oil supplements. What gives there? Well, we are eating so well. We general population on the sad diet is being overloaded with um, omega six from vegetable oils mm. and processed. Okay. So that's the source. Because that I did do. I did get rid of all vegetable oils. I never had corn oil. I got rid of canola oil. I just went to olive oil, butter. If we look at the actual content of omega-6 in a three-ounce cooked serving of grain-fed beef, or even from a, a store-bought ribeye, let's say that, because I have a slide, it shows two entries at one end from a research study. Then they went and they bought um, items from the local supermarket. So we're looking at a store-bought ribeye steak, three ounces cooked, and you're getting 0.7 grams of omega-6. Wow. From two, ta uh, sorry, from one tablespoon of soybean oil, you're getting seven. Wow. Order of magnitude. Yeah. Exactly right. Hmm. Now, the, 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 the funny thing is, if you look at the ratio, omega-6 to omega-3 you know, omega ratio, that same ribeye had a 6.7. The soybean oil only had a 7.8 hmm. to 1. So, that's God. a problem with ratios. It just masks that 
amount, yeah. right? So, right. so then, then we could take that and we could say, okay, so there's a difference. We are really, really good at measuring exquisite differences, quantitative differences between things. But what we're not so good at is extrapolating those differences to biological significance. Yeah. Um, if I, if I look at, uh, how many ounces of cooked ground beef would I need to eat to supply enough omega-3 to equal what I could get from one ounce of cooked wild-caught Atlantic salmon, okay? Mm -hmm. I'd need to eat three pounds of grass-fed cooked ground beef to mm, wow. give me the same amount of omega-3. You know, again, these are specific instances, but um, to what I could get from one ounce of salmon. So if yeah. you want omega-3, eat salmon. Right. Now, now <laughs> the trick here, of course, is that you're, you're going to be always getting more omega-6, regardless yeah. of whether that animal was grass-fed or grain-fed. It's a little bit, just a little bit. But yeah. it's, you know, so, and, and then the, the last thing on that one is just to say, okay, we talked about salmon. We said it would take three pounds of, of cooked ground beef, grass fed, to give you what you could get from one ounce of salmon. From two tablespoons of safflower oil, you'd have to eat 32 ounces of wild caught salmon. <laughs> wow. To get enough omega-3 to counteract the omega-6 you'd get from two tablespoons yeah. of oil. So it's the oils that we need to get out of our diet. Yep. If yeah. you want omega-3, then look at oily fish. Yeah. Again, somewhere down the road, somebody might show me how this, in fact, becomes important. But given where the population is right now, mm, yeah. I have I have a hard time believing that this is one of the short stays. Yeah, yeah, we have to get the glycemic control looked after. We have to get protein adequacy looked after. Uh, there's probably three or four other things before um, the balance of, uh, of of polyunsaturated fats. But certainly getting the large amounts of polyunsaturated fats out of our diet may actually be the way to do it. Rather than going seeking fish, getting all of the seed oil out of your diet probably would be of a benefit. Well, and one of the advantages of rumen animals is that in the rumen, the rumen microorganisms actually hydrogenate. They make trans fats, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're not an issue. Hmm. <laughs> so this is, this is another good trick for us. And another, I would suggest, essential role for ruminants, ecologically speaking. I just noticed that mayonnaise. In fact, the mayonnaise that I eat, Hellman's, is made with soybean oil. So, is that a good idea to get something that doesn't have soybean oil in it, or is it okay to eat soybean oil? I would suggest that if you, that well, I'll tell you what we've done. Yeah, uh, we've we've gone through a long process of one trying to learn how to make it, and, and then found some sources of mayonnaise that are not made with those vegetable oils. Right. Um, so there are a number of products. Okay. I'll check it out. Um, so are there places online where we can read more about you, Peter? Sure. If you look for Peter Ballersted in 
Google and on uh, YouTube, you can find me. You can also find me on Twitter uh, at grass-based, one word. You can find me on Facebook at grass-based health. I also have a personal page if anybody wants to connect that way. And your blog? Oh, thank you. And my blog, which I keep threatening to get more active on. It's kind of a cobweb site at this point, but there's a writing project that I made the mistake of saying yes to some previous uh, mentors and uh, uh, made, uh, professors. So they, they said, you know, you need to write a book. And I said, yes, sir. And so now <laughs> they say, how's that book coming? So <laughs> there needs to be some writing. Right. And so where is your blog? <laughs> it's grass-based health. It's on Blogspot. Awesome. Excellent. Peter, thanks very much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, Richard, are you hungry? Mm-hmm. I am a little bit. I'm a little peckish. I guess it's time for... Recipes! Okay. I'm going to go first this All right. time. And... Uh, in honor of my newly discovered Indian part heritage, <laughs> That's great. I'm going to do another bolar beef recipe, but this one's- f- A little curry. A little bit of curry, yeah. A little yeah, curry. From, this is the one I did at the- uh, Hey, hey, no, no cultural appropriation there. <laughs> <laughs> my people don't like it when you mock us like that. <laughs> no, I'm going to, uh, in all seriousness, I'm going to do a recipe that I did at Keto Fest. This is a curry recipe, and you don't have to use beef. Um, you could use uh, any shoulder- uh, joint of of a, of a mammal, so you could use a kangaroo shoulder, you could use uh, goat shoulder, you could use lamb shoulder, which is delicious. You mm. use pork shoulder. Shoulder is a very fatty joint. So what yes. you do is you you, you basically slow cook uh, the meat for about ten to twelve hours until it just falls off the bone, it falls right. apart. Then you get a fork in there and you pull it apart, and you're basically making pulled pulled meat. And what I do is I put it in the freezer, I doll it out into two hundred gram blocks in um, freezer bags and then I freeze it and it stays in my freezer for a couple of months until I'm ready to use it. And then here's how I make a curry pulled beef. So okay. I'm going to get some spices and the spices that I'm going to use to make my curry, and everybody's going to be different and you can just get curry powder off the shelf, but curry powder often has rice flour and starches and other things to help yeah. it sort of stop it from um, – clumping together, so I like to make them from scratch. So I'm going to take a, 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 a tablespoon of cumin seed, a tablespoon of coriander seed, half a tablespoon of fenugreek seed, and half a tablespoon of cardamom seed. Mm. And it's the little black seeds inside the cardamom, not the cardamom pods. If right. you get the cardamom pods, you have to crack them open. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get these seeds and I'm going to roast them in a dry frying pan first until they start to crack. And this will actually mellow and help develop the flavor. If you put these seeds straight as they are, straight into the meal, we're only going to take about two, three minutes to make this meal. Yeah. So you're going to end up with very raw flavors. So we, what we want to do is we want to mellow them. So this is why we dry roast them in a pan. Mm-hmm. And the seeds just start to make a little cracking sound, like little popcorns. And <laughs> then uh, I take it off the off the pan and I add the roasted seeds to the magic bullet and I 
blend them and I yeah. want to basically turn it into a powder. Yeah. And then what I do is I uh, I add the pureed curry powder to a hot pan and I add about a tablespoon of ghee or you could just use butter. Butter, yeah. And the meat and uh, and basically I m- I mix the meat into that uh, developing curry flavour mm. and I cook for about two minutes to. We're basically blending the meat flavours and the curry flavours. Right. And like, like we've done with all these pulled meats, when we take a meat that has taken 10 to 12 hours to cook, it's developed a really rich flavour. And we're taking these spices that we're just throwing into a pan and two minutes later we have a meal. And it's the combination of the really sort of uh, impactful and harsh spices and the mellow flavour of the meat actually combines to produce a, a, a meal that tastes like it's been cooking in the spices for four or five hours. Wow. Anyway, so I'm going to take the pan off the heat uh, once these flavours are all blended. I'm going to add a bit of salt to, to, to taste and then I'm going to swirl through probably about two tablespoons of sour cream. Mm. And I didn't mention that it was about – I used two packets of beef for those ratios of um, spices. So oh, okay. uh, it, it's going to be about 400 grams. Of, of pulled beef uh, for those um, amounts of spices, and uh, yeah, and so that's a, a, an Indian curry, nice. uh, a beef pulled beef curry. Wow, that's my recipe. So, what have you got, Carl? Well, what I have uh, is a recipe that I made a couple of times, and this is on wickedstuffed.com, and it's essentially keto Swedish meatballs. Oh, nice. Yeah, I love Swedish meatballs. I have Swedish heritage, and so you know, this is something that I missed. So, mm. uh, the, in- the ingredients are two pounds of ground meatloaf blend. And what that is usually mm-hmm. some blend of uh, ground beef and ground pork. And right. you can do 50-50 or you can skew mm-hmm. it either way. doesn't matter. Two yeah. pounds. Uh, you need a cup of shredded mild cheddar. Mm-hmm. You need a large egg, tablespoon of water, mm-hmm. quarter of a cup of diced onions, a half a teaspoon of ground nutmeg. And the nutmeg mm. is really going to be that that key spice here. Um, right. Also, a quarter teaspoon of allspice, mm-hmm. uh, four tablespoons of salted butter, uh, one and a half mm-hmm. cups of chicken broth, cup and a half of heavy cream or heavy whipping cream, uh, a mm-hmm. tablespoon of Dijon mustard, miracle, miracle yeah. of miracles, mm-hmm. that stuff, and a <laughs> tablespoon of Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire. So, Worcestershire, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, here's what you do. You preheat the oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit and preheat mm-hmm. a slow cooker to low. You right. line a large baking pan with parchment paper and in a bowl, combine the meat and the cheddar cheese, the egg, the onion, the water, the, the spices, the nutmeg and allspice. Mm-hmm. And you roll it into, uh, you know, one and a half inch or so meatballs and arrange mm-hmm. them on the baking pan. You might need two baking pans. But uh, it makes about 24 meatballs. So Mm. then you bake this for about 20 minutes or until a thermometer reads 140 degrees inside. But 20 minutes is is good enough. It'll get there. Yeah, it'll get there. Meanwhile, in a small skillet, heat the butter, the chicken broth, and the heavy cream over medium heat. Mm -hmm. Guess what? That's going to be your sauce. Mm -hmm. And then once that begins to simmer, reduce it to low and let it continue to simmer for about 20 minutes until it reduces half the size. And you got to keep stirring it, especially toward the end. Right. So this is a this is a common technique in in cooking when you're making a sauce. You start with, you know, something like stock and cream and yep. butter, and you reduce mm-hmm. it. And the more you reduce it, the more intense the flavor gets. Right. Yeah. So it develops. Yeah, it develops more and it intensifies. So half mm. the amount means twice as tasty. Just remember that. Mm. 
<laughs> so now you stir in the mustard and the Worcestershire sauce, and you pour the sauce into a slow cooker and add the meatballs when they're ready. And you cook mm -hmm. that on low for about two hours so the meatballs can marinate and stir about every half hour. So, you know, it's not going to, you're just going to let them get happy in there. You're not really mm. cooking them all that much anymore. So, what's great about this is that it's a, you know, slow cookers or crock pots, we call them. You know, I guess that's a brand mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah. Are, are, are really great for parties. And Swedish meatballs are great for parties. You could serve these at a party. Nobody knows mm -hmm. that they're not, there's no carbohydrates. Nobody cares. Secret keto food. Yeah. <laughs> What is this, some kind of weird keto culty food? No, man. The nah, meatballs. Swedish meatballs. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my recipe, and that's a show, right? Yeah. A long one. Uh, it is. Uh, apologies for that. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2KetoDudes, on Instagram at 2KetoDudes, and make sure to use the hashtag 2KetoDudes. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and all that junk, head on over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free... Join the Two Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. So go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our podcast in our forums, make a pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or go to the donate.2keto.com. And you can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on iTunes. Absolutely. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC and produced by Pwop Productions, providing audio, video, and podcast production services since 2002. Online at pwop.com. Keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right, and we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Two Keto Dudes.